Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Hello to everybody upstairs in the Well Cafe. If we haven't met before, my name is Johnny. I serve as a lead pastor for this worship community that we call The Well. That meets in two places uh, at the same time, worshiping together. Uh, before we get started, I want to share this really quick announcement or plea or however you want to hear it, uh, in addition to all the other announcements you've heard. Uh, but specifically for this uh, worshiping community, uh, in our next series that will follow the one we're currently in, that'll start in about three weeks, uh, I am looking for people that are interested slash willing to uh, read scripture for us in worship. Uh, we'd love to start um, each of our messages in that next series uh, with uh, somebody reading scripture. So if you're in the Well Cafe, if you're here in the Well, and you wouldn't mind doing that for us, I would love for you to shoot me an email. Uh, we'll put that on the screen, uh, pastorjohnny at fmcm.org slash, not slash, sorry, that's not how emails work. Uh, <laughs> Pastor Johnny at fmcm.org. And then just email me with uh, I'm in or something like that. Maybe it's not going to be up there. I don't know. So uh, anyways, <laughs> I think my email might be in the bulletin, actually. I don't even know why I need to tell you that. So just email me. Say you want to do it, right? And, and we'll, we'll get you set up and we'll give you some more details. We're in a brand new series today. I need to get going because this announcement's falling apart so quick. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're starting a brand new series today called In the Beginning. And so if you brought your Bible today, I want you to grab it. I want to invite you to turn to the, ah, nailed it, beginning, very good. Uh, Genesis 1, uh, it's going to be on page 1 of your Bible if you weren't aware of that. I almost wrote duh on that slide, but I thought that would be mean. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have blue ones in both spaces, and it's also on page 1 in that Bible as well. We spent the last five weeks prior to this series that we're doing uh, on the series uh, on the Bible as a whole. We looked at the histories, uh, the stories, and we tried to provide a sort of framework or lens through which we can see the story of God unfolding in the Bible. And as part of that series, uh, we talked about that story kind of being like a thread, if we imagined it like a thread being pulled through the lives and the experiences of the people that wrote down their encounters with God. And, and, and that story we can find uh, by looking through the lens of Jesus. Now, what we also see in there is that, um, that we find sort of three main characters that make up this story, and we can kind of follow those characters throughout Scripture. You'll find that God is one of those characters, God's world as uh, a character in that story, and God's children. And as we read through Scripture, as we continue to invest ourselves uh, in, in Scripture, in, in reading and discovering that unfolding story, we find out more and more about each one of these characters, but we also find out more and more about the relationship between them and how that is meant to operate. And, and we continue to see this story unfold uh, right in front of us. So, uh, the word Genesis, this book that we're going to be in here at the very beginning, uh, the word Genesis means origins or, or beginning. And so what we want to do over these next three weeks is look at the first three chapters of Genesis and, and see where this story and these three relationships begin and then how it begins to unfold. So if you have your Bible and you're, you've found page one, then we're going to read together this. Uh, I'm going to read it for you. You can read along. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's actually a really familiar part of Scripture. Even people that are not people of faith that haven't set foot in a church or uh, opened a Bible are familiar with this story because it's, it's, it's become culturally um, known. So here we are. Chapter 1, 
verse 1, Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. If you've never read this before, you'll see that there's a bit of a rhythm if you keep reading. A cadence. There's some um, repetitions in there. When we looked at our series in the past, the, the, the Bible series we did just before this one, one of the things that we wanted to do in a way of understanding how to engage Scripture is to not only understand uh, the history in the words, right? As we read the history in the Bible, but the history of the stories as well. Not only what is it talking about here, but like in what setting was it coming about? Was it written at the time it was happening or was it written down later, right? What's the history in the text? What's the history of the text? And then also what's the history of the reader? This is where we find our meeting when all these things start to converge and we start to have this world painted for us. We start to understand and the words come alive for us. And a part of all of that is kind of understanding genre of writing, right? Genre is so important because it tells us sort of intuitively the rules of the story. So if you are going to uh, watch a horror movie, for example, and you know it's a horror movie, you know the rules of the horror movie, right? You know how it works. Uh, you, you, you know what to expect. You know how they use certain, certain things, elements in the plot to communicate certain things. Uh, if you uh, watch a romantic movie, same deal. It doesn't operate under the same rules as a horror movie. Same thing with a thriller. And, and, it, and it all is the same in, in literary genres as well. Whether it's a storytelling, is it prose, is it a parable, um, is it a poem or a song? It tells us something about what the author is trying to do when we know the genre in which they're writing. What we find here in Genesis chapter 1 is a poem. A poem written by ancient Israelites. And what we know is that when it found its place right here in the beginning of Genesis, and then subsequently in the beginning of the entire scripture, not only for the Hebrew people, but for us Christians as well, it found its place there as, as uh, the, the Jewish people, the, the Israelites began to put together their scripture um, around the 6th century, maybe uh, into the 5th century BCE, right? This is what happened. Now, the story might have been with the people for a long time, but this is when we get it as we have it here. And, and, and at that time, what's really vital to know about that is it, at that moment, Israel was in exile. You might have heard uh, of the Babylonian exile, right? Uh, Babylon comes in and, and wrecks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and enslaves the Israelites, right? And, and, and when they come out of exile is when they put all of this down and put it together. But it was with them prior to that. It stayed with them. It was a song so it could get stuck in their head, right? And stuck in their hearts. And they would sing it over and over again. Because if you were an Israelite in exile, no doubt, especially there with the Babylonians, you heard over and over again the stories of Babylon. 
You heard their stories about how great they were and how great a nation they were. You heard over and over again their stories of creation and who, got, who their God was. If you don't know that story, we have them. Uh, the ancient Babylonian creation stories are actually some of the oldest that we have found archaeologically that we have evidence of and that you can actually see those clay tablets. Uh, you can't read them. I can't read them. But, but we've seen them and we've translated them and we have them. You can look them up and read them uh, online. But the, the gist of the story is, is that they have this god, their god, Babylon's god's name is Marduk. And Marduk is the one that creates the universe. Marduk is there in the beginning with the, the divine assembly and the primordial waters, right? And they're battling for position, right? Who's going to be the best and who's going to be in charge? Now, I can't tell you the rest of the story here because it's like rated R. Like, it's ridiculously violent and it's, in, it's so gruesome. Uh, I'll tell you later if you want to know. Uh, but the point of the story is, is that Marduk, as he slays his opponents, he creates the world as we see it with them, right? Like, it, it comes about uh, in blood and, and betrayal and conquest. This is the world, and as they fashion humans, they do so because the divine assembly decides that they need slaves, people to serve them, people to do things for them. And so they create humans. So according to the Babylons, creation was born in blood and betrayal, and people ex existed to be enslaved. And so that's how Babylon understood themselves as well. They tried to characterize their God, or vice versa. And so they saw the world as a place to be conquered, um, and, and, and through the sword if necessary, and then they tried to enslave the world. Israelites, on the other hand, had a different story entirely about who their God was, who God called them to be, and how they understood creation. It didn't come through the sword, it came through a song. No blood, no betrayal, no conquest, but a creator who creates by speaking. And then light comes, and then life follows that. If you were an Israelite in Babylon, this song was probably a source of hope for you. In uncertain times, it's a song that was on your heart that allowed you to look out into creation and find solace as the sun rises and the sun sets the rhythm of the days and the years, to see the fish in the sea and the, and the birds flying in the air that are so free their captors can't even take that away from them. Where does your strength come from when everything is taken away from you? It comes from your faith. And so they imagined this and they saw this and they sang this song that was on their hearts. And as they watched the rhythm of the sunrise and the sunset, they could hear the cadence in their song of there was evening and there was morning. Over and over again, they saw, they heard the cadence in, in their heart and it, and it strengthened them that God saw that it was good and that even after six days and on the seventh, that even God rested from all of the work. And this had a calming and reassuring effect on the soul, I would assume. For the ancient Israelites, the song that was on their heart that they sang that allowed them to look into the world and creation and see God and strengthen their faith was an affirmation of faith. It's what we have here in Genesis 1. I believe at its, at its very simplest, that's what we have here when we read Genesis 1, is an affirmation of faith. It was an acknowledgement of who they were and whose they were. What was God like? Was God a conqueror or was God a creator? And they saw that and they knew that that's who they were to be characterized by. This was the compass for their life. Were they perfect at it? 
Absolutely not, by no means. But that's what they strove for. They, they put God in their sights, a God who's creative and imaginative. If we fast forward over 2,000 years, we find ourselves in another place where there's a man who's looking up into the heavens and sees something that no other human being has ever seen or had ever seen at that moment. I don't know if you could imagine that feeling. Like nobody on earth has ever seen this thing and you're the one that sees it, right? And, and so when Galileo put his eye to his telescope to look beyond the veil of the sky, right, and to see what was out there. And he witnesses planets and moons in great detail. I can't imagine what that feeling would have been. Things that people had hypothesized and and guessed about, but had never actually laid eyes on them. And he does. And it's said that in that moment that he drops to his knees and he praises God in great admiration for just how grand creation is. And he thanks God for the blessing that it was that he got to witness it. Can you imagine, can you imagine God up there, right? Like he's, he watches Galileo, you know, put his telescope together and, and, and like God's starting to like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I created these things like billions of years ago and nobody's seen them yet. You know what I mean? Like, like it's going to happen finally. Somebody's going to find them. You know what I mean? Like, it's like when you're giving a gift to somebody that you love so much and you just found the perfect thing. I mean, it's amazing. They have no clue it's coming. It's going to be so exciting. And you know what's in there, but they don't. And you hand it to them and you make that face, you know, where you're just waiting. And it's like you want to just open it for them. Like, well, hurry up and open it. And as they open it and they see what it is, and you're just like, yeah, isn't that awesome? Like, like presents wrapped, waiting under the Christmas tree for so long. Such a massive part, beautiful part, mysterious part of God's creation lay behind the veil of the sky. Nobody could see it. And then we did. Galileo wanted to share these observations and how they kind of confirmed some other scientists who had hypothesized uh, using just math and shadows on the ground that probably the earth wasn't the center of the universe, that it might actually revolve around the sun. But as he, you know, realized that this is what the confirmation was, he was a little bit nervous because as a faithful Christian, Galileo knew that this would be controversial because the church at the time held to the belief and the doctrine that not only was this an affirmation of faith, but this was the literal account of how creation came, of how it happened. So Galileo knew when he was bringing this information that this wasn't just going to be like, oh, that's, that's cool, man. Like, that's not how it was going to go down. So he writes this letter to church leaders, and he tells them about his findings. And he tells them his heart for God and how much he loves God and how much he appreciates creation. He, had, he quoted scripture to say, look, I believe that the Bible actually affirms this idea that, that the earth revolves around the sun with all the other planets. I don't think it contradicts our faith and our scripture at all. But he was rejected. He was told that basically because he's not reading the Bible literally, that he's not taking it seriously. And thus, he's not taking God seriously. He was condemned as a heretic, sentenced to house arrest. And uh, he was forbidden to share any of this stuff with anybody. But he did it anyway. It's like he wrote letters and sent it out. and, And that's what happened. But to the world of that day, especially to people of faith, like the common sense observable facts seemed indisputable, right? Like, 
I'm standing here. I'm looking at the sky. I don't feel like I'm moving. I see the sun moving. I see the moon moving. Like, this doesn't make any sense, Galileo. Plus, given this and what the Bible says, like, you know, you're the only one that thinks this. Like, right? Like, you know. And we have at this point the beginnings, or another Genesis, of this conflict that arises that didn't exist before. A tension between our discoveries that we make through scientific method and our faith. They begin to clash. Today we take it for granted that the earth revolves around the sun. I don't, I don't know of anybody that disputes that. That's, we make models of it all the time in school. We, like, nobody, it, we, we still say things like the sun rises and the sun sets, but we don't literally believe that that's what's happening. And that's just the way we poetically talk about it because that's the way we see it. But the fact that they don't literally do that is not a question for us, nor do we see it as contradicting the truth of Scripture at all. And really, in the grand scheme of things, we're not that far separated from Galileo. And yet, our understanding has changed. I think we maybe got used to the idea at this point. I don't know. But that tension still remains. That conflict that is either felt sort of in the water of culture, right, like that we just kind of feel or that you might even feel internally. Because as Christians, we believe the Bible is authoritative for us, that it's true, it's the, it's the primary source of our faith. Otherwise, why would we invest time in it? It's important to us. We want to engage it and we want to find the truth of our lives. We want it to lead us in our lives. Which leads so many of us to feel that tension or that conflict or even a, a fear, maybe, when our discovery leads us to theorize something that might not be readily apparent in Scripture or doesn't appear to be in Scripture or reflected in Scripture at all. And this causes some of us to feel like these two things are mutually exclusive. We have to set them apart, right? We have to say, like, well, here's science over here, and here's faith over here, and, like, you know. And, and for some of us, it, it means that there are, there are people of faith in this world that just, like, don't trust science. They don't trust it. It goes over there until they get sick, and then they take medicine. They trust it then. But they, they don't trust it. They set it over there. Or there's people of science that don't trust faith. They push it over there. Both of those poles, like those polar opposites, like they, they look at each other as the problem, as the enemy, and yet there's so many of us in the middle that wrestle with attention as well, but we don't think that it's just one or the other way. We have to figure out how we wrestle with Scripture, how we wrestle with ourselves, we wrestle what we see. I don't think this tension is really all that necessary. That's the, I think that's a bigger question. Is this really necessary? Is our faith really threatened by the things that we discover in this world are the things and the truths that we discover about the universe really a threat to the creator of the universe? Can the God of poets and prophets also be the God of planets and particles? If you're like me and you wrestle with this tension and you are fascinated by the things that we discover and yet you hold a deep, profound respect uh, for, for scripture and find it authoritative for your life and, and so you find yourself wrestling a little bit with what this means for you, 
I want to offer you this gift that was offered to me um, that has been so important in my life uh, as I continue to explore and wrestle and be open uh, to the way God is going to reveal himself to me. It comes from Werner Heisenberg. He's a theoretical physicist and one of the pioneers of quantum mechanics, which earned him a Nobel Prize in physics in 1932. And he also happens to be a person of very deep faith. And he said this, uh, the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will turn you into an atheist. But at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. Werner, like so many of us, wrestled with the things that he would discover, the things that he would find, and with his faith in God and a creator. But he found that the more he dug, that the more, like the more we discovered, that the more we discovered we didn't know, like the, the more things we found out, the more mysterious the world became. And, and for Werner, the more complex he saw that creation was, the more it led him to a creator. Now, that's not true for all of us, but it was true for him. I want to share this next section uh, with this sort of warning. I'm not a physicist. I know that shocks a lot of you. They don't teach me this stuff in seminary, but I am a bit of a nerd. I love to read. I, I love to hear lectures and of all sorts of things. But I have always found uh, the miraculous discoveries that we make about our universe to be fascinating. I love to see the pictures. I love to hear lectures on it. I love to have my brain just melted and coming out of my ears because it cannot even fathom what they're talking about. Today, when we look into the sky with our high-powered telescopes and our satellites, that we can observe that all of the galaxies in the world are actually moving away from each other. It's an expanding universe. And it's expanding because space itself is expanding. Now, if you create a mathematical model, which we have, uh, that calculates the rate of that expansion... And you can see how quickly, how rapidly the, 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 the universe is expanding. And you run that mathematical model backwards for billions of years. They can come to a, sort of a visual representation in their minds of how the, uh, the Big Bang Theory works, right? Uh, it's the most widely held uh, understanding of the expansion of the universe in science. And so they can start to see how that actually happened and start to make uh, the uh, theories and hypotheses about how all of this came to be and how it all worked. Now, if you keep running that mathematical model backwards in those billions of years, you'll find what science has found is that everything eventually converges to a single point. A single point that predates everything that the Big Bang Theory tries to explain. That single point that is not part of that theory it lies beyond that theory. Scientists don't know what it is yet, but they call it initial singularity. It's a very smart way of saying things. It's this unimaginably compressed state in which our entire universe, all of existence, every planet, every galaxy, every star, every person, every molecule, every atom, every particle existed in a space Smaller than a sugar cube. We can't fit everything in this room in here. And yet, 
All of existence was in one single spot. Everything, you were there. Me, I was there. Our families were there. Anybody who ever lived, anybody who will live, was there. Now, when matter and space and energy and time are all compressed that much, physics gets a little weird at that point, right? All these laws of physics that we know that help us measure all of this stuff and hypothesize something like this, it all breaks down and stops working at that point. We don't understand how to understand it. In initial singularity, the laws of physics don't exist as we know them. In fact, everything was so compressed that matter and energy Two separate things here were the exact same thing there. All the fundamental forces of physics were one unified force. In initial singularity, there was no light and no dark. There was just it. There was no time. Everything was one. We don't have any language in mathematics for this because it's beyond our language, it's beyond our math, it's beyond any calculations or equations, it's beyond our very imagination. We can't even conceive of this. It's just singularity, one uncreated thing with the potential to create everything. And that overwhelms me. I know all that was probably overwhelming for you too. But that's kind of the point. It's overwhelming. It's so big. It's so massive. It's so unfathomable. It drives me to this profound reverence and awe of my creator. I'm humbled at how small I am compared to all of that. And yet, I get to be here and experience it. Get this, scientists generally agree that singularity, or whatever we'll call it, right? That singularity um, predates Big Bang, but lies behind this impenetrable veil. This isn't people of faith. Like This is our best knowledge and our best guess at what we can know in the future. That whatever this thing is, we can never know it. It will always be behind something that we cannot see. We just, all of our measurements tell us there's something back there and we don't know what it is. Science calls it the great mystery. All of our study of how the universe came to be and the development of the universe describes the single source that created us then transformed itself into a system of forces and energy that continues to sustain the universe and life today. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul to me when he's preaching in Athens in Acts 17, and he says, in God we live and move and have our being. Sounds a lot like that to me. And I find that my faith is not diminished. I don't find that my, my understanding of Scripture is any less. In fact, I believe that I'm actually seeing God right in front of me. Just whoever's discovering it is calling it something else. But I'm seeing it. In fact, and I'm driven, driven into a deeper, more profound uh, sense of belief and faith and trust. And I have this awe, uh, awe and wonder of the majesty and the mystery and the grandeur of God as a creator. 
Now, I know some of you are sitting here thinking, that was a really nice rant, Pastor. <laughs> I, I hear you, but I got a little lost there in the middle. I'm not really sure what this is all supposed to be about. I thought this was a church. Aren't we supposed to be just talking about the Bible? I don't know. I say all that to tell you this. When we see things like this, the deep question that we're asking is, is it true? Are the things that we're discovering, are, are they true? Is the Bible, is it true? We're asking about truth because that's what we're after, is truth. So I want to tell you two things in relation to that. First, yes. <laughs> the Bible is absolutely true. But we have to make a, a clear distinction here. Often we want facts, and facts and truth aren't always the same thing. More than ever, we should know that today. Facts and truth aren't always the same thing. I want you to take Jesus, for example, who tells us the story of the prodigal son. Many of you are familiar with that. A father has two sons. The youngest one takes everything and leaves and uh, squanders it, living in squalor, and decides, I need to go back because... I'm not fit to be a son, but I might be fit to be one of my father's servants, and his servants live way better than I'm living now, so I'm just going to swallow my pride, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to beg him to let me be a servant, and as he is coming home, probably rehearsing his speech that he's going to give to his father, his father sees him on the horizon and takes off down the road, probably completely undignified, sandals flying off, to greet his son, to cover him in a robe to bring him back and to throw a party because his son has come home. Nobody questions whether or not that was a factual story. We don't question the truth of that story. Is it a factual story? No. Jesus says it's not. This is a, this is a parable, right? I'm telling you a story to illustrate a truth because that's what we do when we can't describe something. We tell stories. We write poems and songs because it moves us, not in here. It moves us in here. It stirs something in our soul. Jesus tells us this because we don't have words or data to talk about forgiveness or grace and how immeasurable it is when it comes from God. Instead, he tells a story that surpasses our imagination, surpasses our understanding, because we're not sure we would do the same thing, which is why it's so hard to believe that God would do it for us. And yet Jesus tells us the story so that it stirs something in us. It's absolutely true. So if you hold to six 24-hour days of creation or you, you hold on to evolutionary theory, it, really, ultimately, ultimately, the truth of Genesis doesn't change. The truth of Genesis doesn't change because here's the second thing. Genesis 1 wasn't written by scientists. It was written by theologians. It was written by theologians trying to express something. Now, their understanding, the way they laid it out, way more sophisticated than any other ancient civilization that created a creation myth. Like, if you read them all, and I have, those are all the ones that I could get my hands on, uh, way more sophisticated here. But for thousands of years, this poem has, has been an affirmation of faith for people that has sustained them. A foundational truth that, that talks about the story of God and how it unfolds in the world. And for us today, it is still that thing. It is absolutely that. It is an affirmation of our faith. And it teaches us about who we are and whose we are. So as we close, I want to share these four quick points about what 
I learn, what, what Genesis 1 teaches me as I read it, and what I think it could teach all of us. A, it teaches us that God is the creator. The universe is not some random or meaningless occurrence. It is an intentional expression of a creative God. It's draw, creation is drawn out of nothingness with the very voice of God and blessed with the breath of God. And the cosmos is populated with infinite diversity that speaks to the brilliance of the creator. And even in our most uncertain times, our most chaotic, stormy, dark times in our life, we know that it's God that holds the world, not us. And the same voice that called life into being is the same voice that calmed the storms of the seas is the same voice that speaks life into the most desperate heart. God is the creator. It teaches us that God, what God creates is good. Only faith can do that. Anything that's just objective and observable, there's no intrinsic value. Only its usefulness. But faith tells us that God, our creator, created and called it good. Our goodness, your goodness, the birds, the trees, all of that is not good because it's valuable. It's not good, be- or God, it's not good because it's useful. It's good because God called it so. Creation is good. It's like a chorus that's repeated in this poem, like a, our favorite song over and over again. God saw that it was good. It teaches us that life is a gift. Creating was a free act of God's grace. God was not compelled by jealousy or rage or, or anything. God decided to create an act of grace. We did not earn our life. We did not create it for ourselves. We are first and foremost recipients of life. We did nothing to get us here. And that gives me a profound sense of gratitude and humility. And finally, it teaches us that we are created with a purpose. We are created in the image of our creator. And we have been invited to participate in that act of creating. We've been given the responsibility, according to verse 28, to care for and protect all that God has called good and to work in partnership with the creator to ensure that all life flourishes. We're going to talk more about that next week. We read Genesis 1 because to know and tell the story of God, we have to begin in the beginning. So that's what we do. To find a world that is good and filled with purpose. And at the center of the whole thing is not us, but it's God. And God's unimaginable, unrestricted love. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for today. You are the God of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. We thank you, God, for the gift of life, for the gift of your presence with us, God. We pray that each and every day we do not take that for granted, that we see not, in, not only in our lives but in others and in the life that surrounds us, God. We see your majesty and your beauty. And as we look closely and we find the complexities of that, con- of that creation, God, that, that we see you in your brilliance. Remind us, God, that it is you who holds the world, that you are at the center. We pray all this in the name of your Son. Amen.